0: Minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday. It's Erev Shabbos. This is your Jewish moments in the morning radio program. On this Erev Shabbos, Parashas Devarim. It's Shabbos Chazon coming up. Tonight is Tisha B'Av, where we postpone the observance until tomorrow night because of Shabbos, of course. Uh, it's Erev Shabbos Chazon with candle lighting at 8.02 in the New York area. Sundays, of course, the observance of Tisha B'Av. Hope everyone has an easy fast. We reconvene and meet here Monday morning, 6 a.m. at J.M. in the A.M. But not before an amazing Sunday schedule on Tisha B'Av itself. Matis will be hosting J.M. Sunday between 7 and 9 a.m. We'll have the new Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island with an amazing uh, array of speakers for a Tisha B'Av morning. Explaining Kinnis and speaking about Tisha B'Av. That'll go from 9.15 till 2 o'clock. You'll be able to watch the entire thing at NachumSiegel.com. And of course, uh, during the evening, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Project Inspire, in this case, under the leadership of host uh, Charlie Harari, we'll take the last two hours of Tisha Above and make them much, much more meaningful than usual with an incredible program that we'll carry at NachumSiegel.com as well. So lots going on. Over the weekend of Tishabov. Monday, of course, back to our regular format. Meanwhile, Friday morning, Erev Shabbos, we will start our Friday morning with Rabbi Beryl Wine and his lecture entitled The Vilna and the Balatanya. Two well known figures who are not known for um, agreeing on every excuse me, agreeing on everything. Let's put it that way. And this is the um, the discussion by Rabbi Barrel Wine on the topic of on the topic of um, the Vilnion and the Balatanias. That's what we'll do. Information about the Rabbi Wine's lectures, one-eight hundred four 499 E I N. one 800 499 W E I N dot com. And again, this lecture is entitled The Vilna Gon and the Balatanya, A Difference of Opinion, Halachic Disputes in Jewish History. Here it is for you at JM in the AM.
1: Tonight's lecture concerns itself with the Gaon of Vilna, and uh, of Schneer Zalman, of Vladi, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Balatanya. Now, I'm not going to discuss... Uh, directly uh, the dispute between the uh, Hasidim and their opponents and the historical uh, events that took place then. I'll only uh, touch on those things tangentially to here. But this is a question of approaches to halacha. And through approaches to halacha, it's really through approaches to how to deal with the world, the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world how to look at our society and how to react to it. And they're two very, very different people, even though they are both enormously great people. They live, uh, the Ghosn dies in 1797. Uh, The uh, Balatanya outlives him by 20 years. The Gon represents the non-Hasidic element of Ashkenazic Jewry. The Gon was a strong opponent of Hasidut. And the Balatanya is the uh, scholarly, uh, philosophical, Kabbalistic interpretation of Hasidut. He is not the same type of Hasidat that was practiced later in the Ukraine or in Galicia. Uh, he's not into uh, uh, potions or uh, magic uh, incantations. He's not a popular Rebbe in the sense uh, that he deals with uh, these matters. But he is, the the tanya itself is the philosophic and uh, halachic defense of uh, the ideas of Kabbalah and Hasidus. And it's interesting that uh, the uh, Gaon's disciple, Reb Chaim of Alojan, wrote a sefer called the Nefesh HaChaim, uh, which is the philosophic and halachic and Kabbalistic uh, uh Disagreement with Hasidus. Uh, Rabbi Norman Lamb uh, has written uh, extensively on the fact that both the Tanya and the Nefesh Achaim apparently say the same thing, but from different directions. The Gond of Vilna, who was born in 1720, is uh, a a one-of-a-kind. Everyone that we have discussed until now uh, has uh, their equal in their generation it's like uh, they're great, maybe the greatest of the generation but they're part of the generation. The Gon is not part of his generation. The Gon is a uh, superman. Uh, the Reb uh, Chaim says the Gon is the Ramban, the Rashboa. He's a throwback of four or five hundred years since we've seen such a person the gone belongs to the time of rashi and the rambam not to the time of the 18th century the uh his erudition his genius his knowledge uh the fact his industry the fact that he kept a notebook in which he recorded every moment of his life in which he considered time wasted uh, places him in a completely different category than anyone else. Now, the in his lifetime holds no official rabbinic or community position. The Gone is a completely private person. He's in his own room. He's in the original ivory tower, for which there is no one that can interrupt him. And he does not lead a group. And in fact, in a matter, he does not even write books. All We have, uh, according to my notes, 54 books attributed to him, but none of them were written by him. They are all written by his disciples and his students. And his sons. Who say this is the interpretation of the goan. But the Ghosn didn't write books. There's a school, a modern school, uh, that has glorified the Hasidic movement, even though they themselves are not observant, and who have uh, sought to romanticize it. So one of their leaders wrote that school exists here in Israel very strongly, by the way, in the universities. You know, like Buber wrote this famous work on Hasidis, right? But Buber had a connection to Hasidis like I'm an astronaut. But uh but that's the way it goes. And uh so uh, they said, well the uh Gon created books, but the Balshamto created people. But they're wrong on both counts. Uh, the Goan did not create books. The Goan's influence permeated an entire society, even though he never stepped outside of his house. I mean, he went into exile when he was a young man, etc. He traveled, but basically, uh, he, in uh, his mature years, he stayed in his house. He didn't conduct the yeshiva, they say that Rebbeim Valoshiner is his main disciple. Rebbeim Valoshiner writes that two or three times a year, the Gon gave him twenty minutes or a half hour. He saved up all his questions, came, you know, he uh, spoke to the Gon, and uh, the half hour was up. That was it. And then he came back a few months later. He was not someone that learned the Chavrusha with the Gon. Nobody did. Nobody could. And uh, the only one that, interestingly enough, that had a personal relationship with the Goon was the Dubner Magid of Jakob Kranz. He and the Gaon were friends. He was like the only person that had entry to the Gaon, And the Gaon would call him in every so often that he should uh, reprimand him, that he should uh, tell him ethical things you should point out, uh, uh, you know, failings. There's a very, very interesting, unusual relationship between the Magid of Dubna and between the Gon. The legend about it, which uh, more than anything else characterizes the Gown, is that uh, the, the Magid said to him, you know, uh, you're to go in Vilna, right? And you know, and you sit and learn all day, etc. He said, uh, that's very good for you. He said, but go out on the marketplace in Vilna, you know, where the Jews have to sell uh, boots and fish and be carpenters and uh, teamsters. And let's see if you're to go in there. That would be a trick. That would be an accomplishment. In Yiddish, it would be, that would be a kunst. And the Goan said, who says, he, he wept. He said, you're right, but who says, As mache? who says that we have to, we have to perform, uh, these types of tricks, right? So the goon uh, the goon realizes that nobody's gonna be like him. You know, everybody wants to be like somebody. Nobody wanted to be like the goon because it's like saying, I wanna be like Rashi, I wanna be like the Rami, you know, it's, it's beyond us. I want to be Moshe Rabbeinu. It's beyond us. So the Gon is a uh, a mystery to us. Now, the Gon, the Gon's basic halachic approach is that everything is found in the text of the Torah, in the text of the Talmud, and that therefore all of the later works are so to speak extraneous if one deals with the text itself so then uh, there's no problem he interprets the famous uh, Talmudic statement El lochotu Yisrael if the Jewish people would not have sinned then we would have only had the five books of Moses and the book of Yoshua. you wouldn't have needed the rest because the rest is only necessary because we don't understand the five books of Moses. And we don't understand the book of Yoshua. So David HaMelech had the right to heal him for us. We needed all the other books to give us some sort of sense. But if we would be, uh, to a to a great extent, uh, higher people, we wouldn't need all of that. That's, you know, we don't need Yoshai Novi to tell me what the problems are. The Chumash says it. But we don't see it in the Chumash. And the Goan came to show it to us in the Chumash. He came to show it to us in the Talmud. His most famous halachic works, therefore, said so the Goan doesn't come to Pasch in halachah. He's a Parshon and he's an Amkun. He's a Parshon, he comes to explain, and he's an amkon. he goes to the depths of the subject matter and to the correct text, from that, we find what the halacha is. The halacha jumps us in the face. So he doesn't write a book, or he's not interested in the shulchan Aruch as a book. Now, the goon wrote, uh, a com- the, we have a commentary to shulchan Aruch called the Beiragra, which is written by his children. The goon's comments to the shulchan Aruch. Again, he corrected the text in many places. He revealed sources and he disagrees in many places. And then he also edited the Talmud so that we have, especially in the Vilna edition, we have his notes on the side of the, uh, the page in which he makes emendations and corrections. Now again, no one would, no one would dare touch the text. When you touch the text, you're a professor. But the gone is so above criticism; he's so above everything that uh, he uh, he can do it without uh, without anyone faulting him. There's no one that's made as many corrections as the gone has, and he did it on the basis three things when he uh, went into exile. He visited many, many libraries and saw original manuscripts. Lagon had a photographic memory. Once he saw something, it was there. So he didn't have to take the manuscripts back with him. And the second thing was comparison of what the Rishonim said, of what the Rashi us what the early Rishonim said. And the third thing was intuition. The Gon had a holy intuition that this is really what it said, and this is what it is. I'll give you a few examples in a few moments that are really astounding as to uh, how the Gon looked at the text. So the Gon is text-based. Now, the Gon had uh, two sets of rules. One set of rules in halacha for himself, his own private practice, According to what he felt was correct. And then the public practice, which many times did not coincide with his decisions. the Gaulle never attempted to impose his decisions on the public. And many times he never even revealed them to the public. There's a very famous story. Uh, the, uh, De wasn't the Roth in Vilna. The Rav in Vilna was a great Talmud Chochem by the name of Rabbi Shmuel Avigdor. Now there's a certain problem being the rabbi in town when the gond is there too. Right? That can inhibit people. But Rabbi Shmuel Avigdor was a very, very strong person. Very strong person. So there was a whole story about a woman with a chicken, with a milk that fell on the chicken, and whether it's kosher or not kosher, etc., So the woman made the mistake of shopping the question. She wasn't satisfied with one. So she asked one of the students of the gon that she should find out what was the opinion of the gon. And then she went to the Raventown, to Rav Shmuel Avigdor, and asked him what the shayla was. Rav Shmuel Avigdor said the chicken is kosher. The gon felt that it was not kosher. When Shmuel Avigdor heard that the Gaon said it was not kosher, so he went to him and he said, "You know, you're going to undermine my authority in town. So you and I now have to go to the woman's house, and we're going to. She's going to serve us that chicken, and we're both going to eat it, which is one way of getting a meal." The goon agreed. This is the this is the story. You know that the, the goon is such a figure that there, there are uh, tons of stories. So whether they are or aren't really makes no difference. So they went to the woman's house and Shmuel Avigdar ate from the chicken. The goon, we have a concept in Alocha Shavia anafshe, Chaticha Yisura. A person can say that something is forbidden to me, even if it's not forbidden halachically. But if I say it's forbidden to me, it's forbidden to me. So the gon is in a quandary. On one hand, he has to eat because he can't, because of the rabbi. On the other hand, he doesn't want, he can't eat because he has said that it was forbidden. So the legend is that as he put the, as he came to eat the chicken, a wax candle that was on the table fell and burned the chicken, and he didn't have to eat it. But we saw from there, we saw from there uh, that the goan was not uh, someone to impose his will or to publicize his, uh, they say that after that incident, the Ghosn never answered any Shilin Aloha. Never, never again responded to questions asked. There was, there were, uh, there were, uh, there was a rabbi in town, there were judges in town, but the Gon was out of that. Now the Gon is, for instance, one of the greatest students of Kabbalah, but the Gon is not a Kabbalist. There's a difference. Uh, the Gon, uh, has customs, minhagim of the Gohon, some of which became accepted in Lithuanian Jewry, most of which never became accepted in Lithuanian Jewry, but some of them retained themselves in the yeshivot because of the fact that the main yeshiva was Valozhin, and Valozhin was founded by Reb Chaim of Valozhin, who was the Gohon's disciple, so therefore it carried over. There is a sefer called Ma Se Rav, which describes all of his customs. We have some of his customs here in Jerusalem, especially in this neighborhood, because the people who founded Chari Chesed were descendants of the Lithuanian Jews who came here in the 19th century, all of whom were descended from disciples of the Gaon of Vilna. Rivlin, Ravkish, the whole of those families... All were from the Gon of Vilna, and therefore many of those customs exist here. The Gon had a special Musa in which uh, he eliminated certain prayers which he said are not. Uh, for instance, we don't say uh, the custom of the Gon is that Friday night or yont of night, we don't say the verses, we don't say Vishom Rubnei Soyos we don't say Vaidaber Moshe's Mu'adeh Hashem. None of that is said. The Goan says that's a hefsik. It has to, the Kaddish has to follow the brocha immediately and this is all, and so that custom we have in our synagogue because of the fact we're neighbors with Shari Chesed and the people that originally started this synagogue were influenced by the Shari Chesed. Uh, there are other uh, sorts of customs. The Goan said that you don't say Yisqadal vi but you say vi V'Yizkadeish. The Gon is the world's greatest grammarian. We'll see in a minute how he sees Halacha in the grammar. And therefore he says the correct pronunciation is vi because in the Novi Yecheskel it says V'yizkade- V'Yizkadeil It doesn't say V'Yizkadeil Ti and the kirik later becomes tzera, and therefore we say yiskadeel v'yiskadeh. So that's a mark in all of the yeshivas, that that is how the Kaddish is said. Even though in the majority of the Jewish world, that is not at all the custom. There are other customs of the gon, but let me give point out to you a few things how he saw in the Posik, what the rabbi saw in the Posik. We have a legend that Lemech, who is the father of Noah, died before the flood, and he died a, a relatively young man. He doesn't live the seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years. So to go and ask where did the where did the rabbis take that from? How did they know? So he says if you look in the Chumash. It says, vayihi yemei Mela ilemach. Everybody else, it says, Vayihiyu yemei. Since it only says vayihi, a shortened version, so therefore the Torah is indicating to us that he did not live the length of years that he should have lived. And therefore, he says, the reason that he died early is... If he would have lived till the flood, then Noach, because of Kibbutov, would have to take his father in. And the didn't tell him that he could take his father in. And if he died immediately before the flood, people would say, well, Lemech was such a tzaddik, as long as he was alive, the flood didn't come. But Lemech wasn't such a tzaddik. So therefore, the took him away early. So there's a, there's a whole philosophy here that a person's life is not always because of a the person. There are so many factors that go into it. But it's all based on the fact that it says "Va'yehi" in the instead of saying "Va'yehi you." He says that you look by Chanoch. It says by Chanoch also, "Ki ki Elohim," that that he's no longer here. He went to heaven. So it also says, vayihi. It doesn't say, vayihi you. And then it finally says, by these people, Asher Hu Chai, the years that he lived. What do you mean the years that he lived? And naturally, it says how many years he lived. Those are the years that he lived. It's telling you that he had more years, but these are the years that he lived. And that for whatever the reason is, the years that could have been allotted to him. So it says it by Odom Marishon because the Talmud tells us that Odom should have lived a thousand years, and he only lived 930. So the 70 years was taken from Odom Marishon and given to David Amelech, who didn't have any years. It's a whole way of looking at the world far differently than the way we look at it, Right? And by Avraham Avinu, it also says, Asher Huchai, because Avraham should have lived 180. He only lived 175 because the Lord did not want him to see that his grandson Esau already turned out to be an outlaw and a murderer and etc. So he took him early. So that's why it says Asher Huchai. He says it says it all in the Torah. if you know the grammar. Now, we can look at that 500 times and never see it. What's the difference by he, by ye, you? But that was the Goan's genius, that everything is in the Torah. The uh, I mean, the legends are enormous, but the, there, was, there was supposed to be a pidyon aben in the week of Parsha's Bracious. So somebody said to him, uh, where is it alluded to in Parsha's that there should be a Pidyon Aben. So he said in the word bracious itself, the it, Breshis is an acrostic, Ben Rishon, Achar Shloshim Yom Tivde. That spells Breshis. But here's one in Allah of famous Gemara that we all have difficulty with. The Gemara says, why didn't Shol destroy Amolik? So the Gemara says, because his Rebbe, through Doeg or they read, Mochotimche as zochor HaMolik, not Zecher HaMolik. And because the Rebbe taught him wrong, there were no... Uh, There's no punctuation in the Torah. So, therefore, the Gemara says that was his error. So, the Goan says from there, a you know, we're very pious here. So, when we read the Parsha Zohar, so we read it, Timche Amolek, Timche Zecher Amolek. The Goan says that we have a proof that. It should be Zecher and not Zecher. Because he said that was the mistake. We find in Digduk many times in Tanakh that wherein there is a double comet, O-O, in Smichut it becomes e So therefore, the Rebbe also read Zecher amolek, But he said originally it must have said zohar. And because of the digduk, it changed the zecher. And therefore, he says that that's the origin of that error. And there literally are hundreds of such uh, examples from the Gaon of Vilna. The Gaon's uh, Shita uh, regarding Tseisachochovim, uh, when we measure uh, the length of the day, uh, whether it's from sunrise to sunset, the Moganavram Avrom and others. Have a much longer day, they from the uh, from dawn till uh, till later till the stars come out. So therefore, uh, according to Dragon, the goan, the tzais akohavim is uh, depends on where you're at in the world. At the equator, it's almost instantaneous. And if you're uh, you know in northern Alaska, it can be an hour and a half. By the way, I mentioned uh, when we discussed Rabbeinu Tam why uh, Rabbeinu Tam holds 72 minutes. Where does he get 72 minutes from? Rabbeinu Tam is also aware that somehow in different places of the world it gets dark earlier than in other places in the world. So why is it 72 minutes everywhere? So Rabbeinu Tam had a colleague, uh, Rabbi Yeshaya Ditrani, uh, from Italy, and in his Sefer and Tosros read, on Shabbos, uh, in Perak Bama Madlikin, he explains Rabbeinu Tam's idea. And basically, Rabbeinu Tam knows that the world is round. It's a sphere. When the sun sets. It goes below the horizon, correct? But light bends. There's a refraction of light. Light rays bend. What is the maximum angle of refraction that light can bend? Sir says it's 72 minutes. After 72 minutes, any light that you see is no longer the sun. It's clouds, it's other things reflecting. Because you've passed the maximum point of the refraction of light of how far light can bend. And therefore he says it's 72 minutes all over the world because of the fact that we're not going by, when it's dark, we're going by the angle of refraction of light. The Goan disagrees with that. The Goan has a different, uh, order for the, uh, Passover plate for the Cairo of Pesach. The Goan doesn't have three matzahs, he only has two matzahs. Nagon has his, all of which is based, again, on his study of text. And because of that, therefore, uh, we see a completely different view of things. Nagon planted the love of Torah amongst Lithuanian Jewry. Nagon is the father of the yeshiva movement, even though he never had a yeshiva, He's the father of the Musser movement, even though he never dealt with Musser, though is the one that saved the Mesilas Yeshorim. He said that in the first ten chapters of the Mesilas Yashorim of Moshe Chaim Litzato, he said there's not one extra word. The Gon was the one that initiated the return of Jews to the Ashkenazic Jews to the land of Israel. It is his disciples who, uh, his disciples are the ones that came. In the early 1800s, the goan himself wanted to come. He literally missed the boat. When he came too late to the boat, he said that he saw that in heaven they didn't want him to come. But the uh, this is from a person who never left his room. So his influence on halacha is that he taught us to look at the text. Now, he spawned many later commentaries. Uh, the, in Chumash, for instance, the Malbin, the Ksav HaKabola, the Or Sameach, the, the all of the, the, the Nitziv HaValazhin, the Hamik Dover, all of them are based upon the idea of the Gon, that it's all in the text. Don't tell me uh, commentaries and don't look from the outside. The Torah tells us its story from the inside. And if you know grammar, Hebrew, because the Torah is grammatically correct, it's the source of perfect grammar. And when there is any diversion from the correct grammar, then the Torah is telling you something. And that's how the rabbis and the Talmud derived all of their halachas. That Torah Shavuot is based upon that understanding. So uh, the Gon is the uh, the great influence in halacha, even though we don't have any halachics for him from him. Now we come to. Uh, the Balatanya. The Balatanya is, uh, to a certain extent, the opposite of God. The Balatanya is a public figure. He's a Rebbe. He deals with thousands of people. He's a public figure. He... Uh, writes in his introduction, he wrote a famous halachic work called the Shulchan Aruch Harav, it's called. This halachic Shulchan aruch, uh is uh, accepted by everybody. It's not... There are certain things that are the province of Chabad, but there are many things that are universal.
0: Rabbi Beryl-Wine has... Um... Spent the bulk of this lecture speaking about the Vilna Now the next part of the lecture, as you just heard as he started it, is about the Balatanya. And we'll do that coming up after our newscast here at JM in the AM. Thanks for joining us on a Friday. It's July 20th, the 8th of Menachem Av. It's Erev Shabbos Parashas Dvarim. Candlelighting time on this Erev Shabbos Chazon 8.02 in New York. Sunday is um Tisha B'Av, at least the Tisha B'av observance. Sunday is the Tisha B'Av observance, and um, we wish everybody an easy fast, of course. A reminder that Tisha B'Av very, very busy here at the Nahum Siegel Network after JM Sunday with Matis, which goes from 7 until 9 o'clock, starting at 9.15, live from the New Springville Jewish Center, the Tisha B'Av service, Kinos. Tishabov explained with five wonderful lectures uh, coming up between 9.15 and Mincha. Uh, a reminder that Mincha will be at the Isaiah Wall. Mincha will be at the Isaiah Wall, and that's going to happen uh, at 43rd Street and 1st Avenue. I do remind everybody, as the threat of rain is in the forecast, that that area is completely covered. There is an overhang. Uh, just in front of the Isaiah wall that, um, I don't think it was done purposely for this reason, but <laughs> but protects protects the parishioners from both rain and sun. <laughs> so uh, come on out 43rd and 1st with your Tallison's and fill in this coming Sunday for the um, Tisha B'Av Mincha service at the Isaiah wall. 7 p.m., of course, Project Inspire under the leadership of uh, Charlie Harari will be broadcasting. We'll have it here at MalcolmSingle.com, of course. And that is an amazing way to wrap up Tisha above 7 until 9 p.m. on uh, Sunday. Plenty going on, as we keep saying, uh, starting Monday, we'll uh, really... Uh, begin to uh, give you all the details regarding our upcoming journey, our upcoming trip. It's going to be quite an achamu week, to say the least. We'll be spending two Ba'av with our friends at uh, the NCSY summer programs next Thursday night, Friday morning. And... uh, just a lot of amazing activity coming up. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world the web on the web at on the Alchemsegal Network, and, of course, in the beloved NSN app. Do we not have our news from Israel? We might be having a problem. I think this is the same problem we had earlier with the uh, audio. Uh, the reason we didn't get to the conclusion of the lecture on Benjamin of Tudela is because... Uh, the um, where we were playing it from, the audio where we were playing it from, uh, malfunctioned, unfortunately. If you'd like to have that lecture or any other lecture of Rabbi Beryl Wine, 1-800-499-WEIN, one 800 wein or RabbiWine.com. Rabbi W-E-I-N.com. All right, I apologize. There will not be a newscast from Israel for us here at JMNAM this morning. Uh, however, actually, we should get used to that because with all the uh, traveling next week, we probably won't have it um, uh, most days. Um, so we, we will now get to the conclusion of the Vilnigoin and the Balatanya. Right, barrel wine on the Vilnigoin and the Balatanya. On this Friday morning, Malcolm Honline joins us at 7.40 Eastern Time, 40 minutes from now, here at JM in the AM.
1: It's the source of perfect grammar, and when there is any diversion from the correct grammar, then the Torah is telling you something. And that's why the rabbis and the Talmud derived all of their halachas, that Torah is based upon that understanding. So uh, the Gaon is the uh, the great influence in Halacha, even though we don't have any halachics for him from him. Now we come to uh, the Balatanya. The Balatanya is uh, to a certain extent the opposite of Gaon. Balatanya is a public figure; he's a Rebbe. He deals with thousands of people. He's a public figure. He uh, writes in his introduction, he wrote a famous Salachic work called the Shulchan Arach Harav, it's called. This Salachic Shulchan aruch, uh is... Uh, accepted by everybody it's not there are certain things that are the province of Chabad but there are many things that are universal that have broken out of the uh, narrower confines of uh, Chabad or even the Hasidus and are universally accepted his Shulchan Aruch, the Shulchan Aruch Arav, is a universal book what happened with the Shulchan Aruch? What does he have to write another Shulchan Aruch for? for? Well, because the first Shulchan Aruch, as we discussed last week, the Shulchan Aruch of Rabbi Yosef Karo and the Ramah, told you what to do. This is how a Jew, you know, you want to put on film, this is film, this is how you put it on, this is when you put it on, this is what you etc. In a sense, the book was a handbook. The book was not meant to be a source of research. Came, the Jewish people never leave well enough alone. So there came the commentaries to the Shulchan Aruch. Enormous commentaries. So that the Shulchan Aruch became not a handbook. It's not something that a person can pick up and read and decide anything from, because of the fact that it is burdened by all of these commentaries. If you look at the page of the Shulchan Aruch, there are six, eight, ten commentaries on every page, and if you really want to know how to deal in halacha, you have to know all of those commentaries, and they have the unfortunate habit of not agreeing one with another. And, uh, and the research involved and everything said so that the Shulchan Aruch became again the province of scholars and of super scholars. So, uh, if, for instance, in Chaim, in the laws regarding everyday life, so we have the Mogen Avraham, and we have the Taz, and we have the Be'er Hetiv, and we have the Machtsu Sashekel, and we have, and we, By the time you're done with one page, you know, you've, uh, you've been through half of the Talmud. So the Shulchan Aruch no longer became usable to the average Jew. Reb Shneir Zalman is a disciple of the Maggid of Mezerich, not of the Baal Shem Tov, Of the Maggid of Mezerich. Reb Dov Be'er of Mezerich. Uh, he writes in his introduction. I just want to read it to you. Al Kane. Da Tainut Ktsora Lavo Bearucha beiun Yama Talmud. We no longer have the ability to study the Talmud uh, with with uh, great analysis and to know where the poskim uh, got hold of their uh, why they made these decisions and therefore he said my Rebbe the Magid of Meserich asked me to write a Shulchan Aruch for people so to speak a popular version but one that would include, and there is the, uh, the uh, uniqueness of this. First of all, the order, tremendously clear order, not necessarily following the order of the Shulchan Arach. Secondly, the reason for the halacha, not just what the halacha is, but the reason for it. And then finally, the clear decision as to how to proceed. I'll give you an example. Uh, the halacha is that uh, what if uh, Reuven comes over to Shimon and he says, you know, I want you to punch me in the mouth. I give you permission to punch me in the mouth. I want you to do it. If we want to expand it, we say, let's say, uh, Ruvein is a professional boxer, and Shimon is a professional boxer. There's two Jews that are, and they're both Orthodox Jews, there's an Orthodox Jew now in the United States that's a world champion, Russian. Don't ask me how that, you know, who gave him permission, et cetera, but that's anyway. So, are you allowed to do it? Are you allowed to punch him. So the uh, Shulchan Harav says, "You're not allowed." Why? It's a, so the Shulchan Ar-Haraf also says, "You're not allowed." Okay, and done. Why? It says because he gives you the philosophic reason. Ain la adam reshus al gufo A person does not own his own body. Even if somebody gives permission to hit him, you're not allowed to hit him because he has no right to let you. He doesn't own his body, right? And that is his explanation that you don't own your body if you think about it so then many other halachas fall into place it's not yours now, that's a machoikas later you know the minchas chinuch and uh, the shagas arye, others disagree with him but he says clearly the rule that you don't uh, so it's not just that he said the halacha he gave you the reason for the halacha uh, it says by uh, by Pesach, the Seder, let's uh, take a practical example. So it says that when you come home from shul, or when you come down to, from the room in the hotel, so you should start the Seder immediately. So... Uh, and the Shulchan says you should start it so that you can get to the food right away. And so that the children won't fall asleep. So, but he changes that. He says you should start, what it means you should start the Seder immediately and the children shouldn't fall asleep. Not because by the time you come to the food the children are all asleep already, he says. That's not the problem. The problem is they should stay awake to ask the four questions. So you got to get there right away. And that's the reason why you have to start the Seder right away. And the, uh, he has many, many ideas such as this. He discusses why uh, the two days of Rosh Hashanah, which everybody discusses, the Gemara already discusses, two days of Rosh Hashanah. So Shem aid him, witnesses will come, and they'll say the moon was later, and therefore we'll have to make it the second day. So the Gemara says the law that the people won't come to treat it lightly. So therefore, they made it two days. So Rashi says means the next year. Next year, people will say, listen, they made us wait till the second day. Last year, we remember that, so we forget about the first day. We'll only keep the second day because we know already from last year how the rabbis do this. He says a different. Uh, he says that's not the correct uh, interpretation. He says that what it means, loss means that since the day min haTorah could have been Rosh Hashanah, except the rabbis pushed it off. For whatever the rabbis can push off a day in the calendar, for whatever reason, but min haTorah that day should have been yesterday since Torah, the day should have been we don't want to cheapen it and say it's not yontiv so even though the rabbi's pushed it to the second day the first day retains its holiness because of the possibility because it was ro'ui it was possible that it should be the day of yontiv and he has many many examples of that in the shulchan arukh of uh, not just giving the law, but explaining the law. Explaining why, and uh, that uh, would go a long way in understanding why that became such a popular book. He, to a certain extent, like the Dagon was the father of later things, he's also the father of later things. The Mishnah Brewer, they are uh, the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, all of that is based upon the fact that he broke this ground. He said, you know, that the, we have to somehow go past the Shulchan Aruch and make a work that's acceptable and understandable to this generation, not burdened again with all of the commentaries. However, what has happened in our time, as always happens with the Jewish people, is that the Mishnah Bruhah became a scholarly work. And now there are commentaries to the Mishnah Bruhah. So that therefore it also, uh, to a certain extent, is no longer the uh, popular book, but it uh, also became the realm of the scholarly. We'll talk about it next week when we talk about the Mishnah Bruhah and the are There are certain innovations in halacha that uh, the Baal Atanya introduced, some of which have been accepted universally, some of which have remained pretty much with Chabad. Uh, Again, let's stay with Pesach, because that's where in the season. We sell the chomets to the non-Jew. The whole evolution of Bechirah's chomets from the time of the Talmud to our time, So let's say the Israeli rabbinate sells all the chomets in Israel to one non-Jew. Well, you got maybe a a billion dollars worth of chomets, right? The non-Jew, very hard to find the the billionaire that's willing to buy chomets from you. Usually they get, you know, the the guy that cleans up in the office, right? There's somebody, you know, he's the one that they have. I used to have a janitor in Miami Beach when I was the rabbi, and I remember the first year I was the rabbi, I told him the Jews, you know, I need you, the of Pesach, we're going to sell the chomets, I want you to buy it, and he refused. And I was shocked, and I said, why? He said, my father told me if the Jews are selling, you don't buy. So he's got, he owes a billion dollars, okay. How can he pay the billion dollars? What happens to make the transaction legal? So today we can understand it in terms of electronic banking. But the Gemara, the, uh, the Chazal had this idea long before Zukf Olav Bemilve. We loan him the million dollars, the billion dollars, whatever he needs. Electronically we transfer it to his account. The only thing is that he owes us the money. And then after Pesach, when he can't pay back the money, so then we say, well, since you can't pay back the money, we're going to buy all of his back from you if you agree to sell it to us. And he always does because he doesn't have the money to pay off the loan. Well, that's ve- oversimplified, but that's that's the procedure. So the, the, He raises the problem... Uh, what do you mean you lend him a billion dollars? Why should you lend him a billion dollars? Where's his credit rating? So therefore, he says he needs guarantors, Jewish guarantors that guarantee the loan, an OrF Qablon. And usually the OrF Koblen used to be uh, the most substantial person in town and that therefore we're lending the money to the non-Jew, but we're doing it with a security that what? That the of Kablam, that the guarantor, stands behind the loan. So that lends a greater legitimacy to the sale. But the custom here in Jerusalem, the custom in many places in the world, is to use an of Kablam. Aside from uh, the, the loan to the non-Jew, we have a Jew that becomes... The guarantor. So that's an innovation of, in halocha of the, of the balatanya, of Ribshneir Zalman, that's been accepted. He has also the question of whether in a mikveh, so a a mikveh has the bathing pool, but it has, the, the, the bathing pool always is city water. It's not kosher water, but it's attached to a real mikveh, which is rainwater or spring water, and uh, through uh, the opening of a conduit between the two, between the bathing pool and between the real mikveh, the waters touch, uh, the word that is used is kiss, and therefore the water in the bathing pool also becomes kosher water, so to speak. And that's how, again, Vast oversimplification of how the mikveh works. So he always claimed that there has to be this, the real mikveh has to be under the bathing pool. In other words, it's, it's vertical. And most of the world holds that it is on the side. So that remains today an issue uh, all over the world. Uh, the Chabad insists that mikvahs be on the bottom and the uh, rest of the world has the mikvah on the side and in many communities that causes uh, rifts and problems but uh, that was uh, his innovation that's what he required he uh, also as the gon he followed the idea that uh, there should be no piyutim the gon took away all the piyutim so that, uh, for instance, uh, we in, in our modern uh, prayer service, even our Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, say very few extra prayers, whereas uh, the Jews in the 16th century and the 17th century had pages and pages and pages of extra piyutim. There were, were piyutim for uh, for the, for every Sabbath, even especially for the four special parshas. The Gaon did away with all of that. The Balatanya also did away with it. The Balatanya also doesn't say vishomru. The Balatanya took nusach hari, which is a kabbalistic nusach, and he made that in the nusach of tefillah, uh, and it remains today uh, amongst the uh, Chabad Chassidim as being its nusach because it, it, it was kabbalistically oriented. Uh, the Balatanya is a great expert in Kabbalah, then he is a Kabbalist. Whereas the Gon wasn't a Kabbalist, but was an expert in Kabbalah. There's a difference between the two. There arose a great uh, dispute on uh, the knives that were used for, by the ritual slaughterers, by the Shochte. In the uh, 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, Uh, steel came into being until then all of the knives were made from iron now the knife of a shochet has to be at one and the same time sharp and smooth well that's a hard combination to achieve because if you make it sharp usually it's not very smooth it's rough it's rough and if you make it smooth, then it's pretty dull. And this was a problem that always existed uh, regarding these iron knives. When the steel knives came in to being, so now you were much, ab- much more able to produce a knife that was uh, both smooth and sharp. And the Chassidim adopted it. Now, yeah, I've mentioned many times before that Chassidim in its earliest form was the most uh, open to technological and uh, different things. It was not conservative. It was radical in many respects. So they used these types of polished knives, they called them. And the Misnagdim opposed them on it. Opposed them greatly on it. It was one of the... Uh, one of the things that was mentioned in the chayrim against the the chassidim. So uh, he uh, defended the uh, use of these knives. Not only he defended it, he said uh, uh, that uh, he heard from Repchaim Valozhin. He didn't speak to him, he said, but he heard from Repchaim Valozhin. And Repchaim Valozhin says that the goon also said that the knives are good. But that they opposed it because of the other things in the chesidus. They didn't want to do anything the Chesedim did. And that that's why they opposed it. But he said now in our time, when the matter has cooled down a little, and it's not, or it's, the, the Chayram has failed, and therefore he said there's absolutely no problem, but then he put it on a halachic basis. There's such a thing that's called a very small pegima. Now, pegima is that there is a roughness in the in the knife. Now, you can never get the knife a hundred percent, right? So we get it ninety nine percent. Especially today, we use stainless steel, surgical steel, uh, the same steel that uh, surgeons use in their knives. So that it's uh, technologically, we have the best that we've ever had, probably in the history of the Jewish people. I didn't say shochtim, but the best shchita that we've ever had. Simply because we have these knives, we have all of these things that exist today. Same thing is true of the circumcision knives. So he uh, he said that the misnagdim hold that even lachatchila, there can be a little roughness in the knife. Al Halocha. And he said, the Chesidim hold that there shouldn't be atchila, any roughness at all. And therefore, that's why they use these knives. And he said, but, he said, there is no reason that we should not be able to eat the meat of the misnagnim, he writes. And there's no reason, he writes in one place, that we should have to have our own separate uh, services, our own separate Mignonim. But that we can live our lives, and we can have one synagogue together, that did not work, but he saw himself as a great peacemaker, and he uh, wrote many letters to his Hasidim not to engage in polemics, not to engage in the dispute, to let to let it rest, to let it be buried. His famous statement, which he wrote in a letter, was that I wanted to go and see to go in the Vilna. If I would have seen him, then he said the whole war would never have occurred. I would have been able to convince him that we're not a cult or a sect or doing something wrong. He said, but the Ghosn wouldn't let me in the door. If you know the Ghosn, you can understand that he wouldn't let him in the door, even if he wasn't coming to talk to him about Chesidus. The Ghosn, you know, that wasn't his world. And the struggle, he writes a whole letter against uh, the Hasidim that uh, informed against the Misnagdim to the Russian government. He himself was a victim of being informed against. He was twice put into prison. Uh, The Russian government enjoyed the war between the Jews. They didn't care who won, they persecuted both sides equally. So he was a peacemaker. But in halacha, he is the father of all of the modern books in halacha. To try and simplify halacha, to place it in front of the Jewish people in a form that's acceptable, understandable, concise, and uh, that, that is really a great achievement, one that lasts until today.
0: This concludes this lecture by J.M. and the A.M. Friday morning hour of Shabbos with uh, the brilliant Rabbi barrel wine. Information about his lectures, including this one, which was on the topic of the Vilni and the Balatanya, one eight hundred four nine nine W E I N, one eight hundred four nine nine W E I N, or Rabbi Wein dot As we've been telling you for years, the lectures are amazing, and uh, the array, the the scope the uh, categories, simply voluminous, and everybody out there should take advantage of Rabbi Wine's acumen when it comes to Jewish history. Again, it's one 800 wein one 800 wein or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com. J&M Friday on this erev Shabbos parsha Dvarim. It's erev Shabbos Chazon. Tishabov is tonight. The observance is postponed till tomorrow night because of Shabbos. So we have a Shabbos Chazon coming up with candle lighting at eight o two in New York. Sunday is the observance of Tishabov. As we've been mentioning, uh, the schedule I think at this point is well known. Uh, we'll be um, uh, presenting. Uh, J.M. Sunday with Matis, Tish above morning between 7 and 9 a.m. At about 9.15, we will go to the New Springville Jewish Center, Staten Island, New York, where they have an incredible list of uh, lecturers who will be spending uh, Tish above morning with us at com. You'll see the entire thing on the website at com. Obviously, you'll hear all of it uh, by going to... Um, Uh, By going to our app, by going to our website, by going to you know our listen line, any of the usual uh, methods of tuning in, and um, that's happening at the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island. Rabbi Eliyahu Sun and Shine, the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva Gedola or Chodesh, will start things off with Kinos at nine fifteen. At ten fifteen, Shlomo Schwartz uh, will speak in memory of Rabbi David Schwartz. At eleven fifteen, Rabbi Moshe Faskowitz. Rosh Hashiva Madrega Sa Uh Mayor Simcha Siegel at 12.15. Speaking in memory of Ramosha Weisberger. And at 1 o'clock are by Aaron Rapps. Rosh uh, Hashiva V'shiva Zichron Shraga. That is the list. And we'll have all of it for you live. You'll be able to watch it live on our homepage at nahumsiegel.com And of course, you'll hear it all on the website, on our app, and on our, and on our listen line. You can uh, hear it all by tuning in the way you normally tune in. Then Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, um, we have our usual Mincha service with um, Jews in need around the world in mind. Uh, that's happening um, That's happening uh, this coming Sunday with Tallis and Tefillin at the Isaiah Wall. A reminder, the Isaiah Wall, or the area in front of it, I should say, is covered by an overhang which means you have the capability of being at Mincha with us outdoors and not getting wet if it's raining and not suffering from the sun if it's really sunny out. So that, I hope, will encourage people to come and participate and to be there. This coming Sunday, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, 43rd and 1st. Again, that's 43rd and 1st in New York City. And, um, that's going to be happening uh, Sunday at two p.m. Bring your tallis and um and and participate with us in the mincha service. Um, at seven p.m. on tishabav Sunday, seven p.m. Project Inspire takes over. Project Inspire takes over seven p.m. Uh, with Charlie Harari at the helm and uh, doing quite a job, by the way, uh, guiding everybody through the the last few um, the last few moments, the last couple of hours of uh, Bove. That's happening between seven and nine. Lots of people carrying it, including us at NahumSeigel.com. Make sure to be tuned in. As we uh, said with Charlie yesterday, who was with us, it is a unique and uh, amazing way to wrap up, to wrap up Tisha B'Av in a manner that um, is very different than the way most people wrap up Tisha B'Av. I think that would be a safe way of saying it. All right. So uh, that's happening between seven and nine. On Sunday night, Monday, of course, we're here with JM and the Am to start the brand new week and get back into our regular format. So that's what's happening. I hope you'll um, uh, keep it here all through the day. And of course, in a few minutes from now, Malcolm Holline will join us with the weekly update. Uh, since the weekly update is just a few minutes away and we just concluded a lecture, we'll go back to our, our, our a cappella format. After all, it's Erev Shabbos Chazon. It's Erev Shabbos here at JM and the Am. We'll do this from the Friedman family, uh, part of uh, their My Zadis Miros collection. And then be back with more. Malcolm Homeline joining us. Plenty more happening here on a Friday, Erev Shabbos at JM in the AM. (laughs)
2: så <laughs> där na <laughs> beru So I give Let me get the Let me get the El
0: J.M. and the A.M. Avram Avram Fried and his family with the My Zaydi Zmiros a cappella album felt after we concluded by Wine's lecture a few minutes ago it would be appropriate to uh, excuse me, to uh, bring you some of the um, Shabbat on this Erev Shabbos Chazon, of course, in a nine days format here at JM in the AM. Candle lighting at 8.02 on this Erev Shabbos Parsha's Devarim, which is Erev Shabbos Chazon. Rabbi Yudin will join us from Israel. Rabbi Yudin will join us from Israel, which always makes his presentation about the Torah portion even uh, more special. That'll be coming up here at JM in the AM. Of course, uh, the Tish starts tonight. The observance begins tomorrow night. As we know at this point, and uh, everyone should have an easy fast. You know the schedule for Sunday. We're presenting a whole bunch of amazing things here at uh, the Nahum Segal Network. We'll remind you, of course, a little later on. And uh, Monday we go back to our regular format here at JMN. There will be no weekly update next week. Again, Shabbos Nahum, there will be no weekly update next week. Next Friday we're doing the show at the NCSY Summer Programs in Beit Meir in Israel. So there will be no weekly update next week. Malcolm Holmline will have a uh, week of vacation for Erev Shabbos Nachamu. And after all, if you have a day off, don't you want it to be Erev Shabbos Nachamu? Of course. I want to thank our friends at JewishWorldReview.com, JewishWorldReview.com. Check out hundreds if not thousands of articles before Shabbos on Israel and the Jewish world and uh, see what they're covering. They've got it all. And of course, again, our, our friends at com utilizing a whole bunch of our content for an amazing and incredible news feed that they have that features a whole bunch of interesting and great news from around the Jewish world, OnlySimchas.com. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Homeline, welcome back to JM in the AM.
3: Good morning, Malcolm and
0: everyone well it's Tish above and uh and sometimes it feels like it's Erev Tishabov because you know that the efforts should be should be for unity should be for uh, an attempt to be as uh, as gracious as possible to all of our brothers and sisters and for some reason it doesn't always work out that way uh malcolm i am i am concerned about the um the segment of our community worldwide, but especially in the United States and Israel, uh, that takes to the streets or makes uh, public um, prayer services or openly demonstrates uh, when it comes to um, uh, to laws and news items regarding the uh, army of the State of Israel, and I just wish that some of these things would either be done more privately or with more common sense. Uh, I can't imagine, especially this time of year, that in any way uh, has any type of positive effect. Your feelings?
3: Well, we've discussed it in the past uh, about my concern about uh, these activities. You can have differences uh, over rules that Israel adopts, and it it doesn't just amount to this issue. We've seen it this week with the reaction to the uh, nation-state law, to other issues that um, uh, arose. And when we think about why we're in the situation, why we lost the base hamikdash because of sinat Hina, because of uh, baseless hatred, because of the relationships between people. After the first one, it was because of various sins that people committed, uh, but it could be rectified with the set. By the time the second base hamikdash, we couldn't have a third because it's a collective responsibility to fight against. Sinatrinam against uh, the hatred against one another, uh, in whatever form, and you, people have a right to to make differences known, democracies in uh, within communities. But the question is, I think you rightly point out, is how you go about doing it and how uh, and thinking about the consequences of, of your action, and sometimes to question yourself about the motivation, what's the real reason, what is the issue, is it a diversion, is it a you know, a, a tactic is it something that has a really greater uh, implication than the initial act?
0: And one other thing, uh, with that in mind, uh, one of our listeners points out, and I think rightfully so, the nerve of the people who you're just speaking about, who are uh, you know wherever they may be, Israel, the United States, who liken this this meaning the the um, uh, the laws of the state of Israel vis-a-vis the draft, who liken this to the korban. Of the first, by it, the, that the hand of Bavel attacking the Jewish kingdom is equal to what is going on now in the state of Israel, and, and I, I mean, you, 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 you are one person who's always outspoken about using, uh, you know, dramatic uh, expressions, Nazi, etc., uh, when it, how how it cheapens the term and how it's only a disservice to our people. This is a tremendous chutzpah to compare this to the destruction of the first temple.
3: It is. Uh, it is inappropriate. It demeans the seriousness of of our historic uh, occurrences and and also misguides people when you you do it. And I think really it's the responsibility of the leaders and the followers to think about the consequences of their words. That's why wise people are instructed to be very careful with what you say and what you do. And in this age when you, you see the people who line up against Israel, the accusations against Israel, and yet the remarkable thing is, while Khamenei talks about the Zionist regime will be eradicated, and at um, the, the same time you have the, uh, the front page stories in Saudi newspapers extolling um, Israel and talking about the need to advance peace and to and talked about even uh, concessions on their parts to advance peace with Israel and the collective interest requires rapprochement understanding with Israel and that the Arab State should be more pragmatic. And we've seen these from Saudi intellectuals, journalists, commentators, I'm not saying this is the Panacea and it's not yet reflected in the polls amongst the people, but it's certainly an incredible process. And the PA attacked them uh because of a of a film that they produced, a documentary that ran in Al Arabiya, which is um, Saudi-owned uh, major media, like uh, Al Jazeera's equivalent, and it's called the Nakba, which is, of course, the, the disaster, the word they use for the creation of the anniversary creation of the state of Israel, and it depicts the lead-up to the creation of Israel, and has uh, pictures from the Holocaust and the pre-state uh, Jewish population, and then says that following the Holocaust, Israel was born and the dream became reality. That's mm-hmm. the exact quote and uh, Arab neighboring armies invaded Palestine. I think it's a, it's a remarkable thing that, that sometimes we don't appreciate and have to look to places like that to get to be reminded and to be inspired and to appreciate what they have come to learn and what they have come to understand, the importance of Israel, what it means to the history of the Jews in the region and our connection to it and uh, tisha is
0: perhaps the uh, best time for us to think about that interesting you'd hope that the uh, most jews around the world would uh would discover that well i think most jews do i still think we're talking about
3: minorities and um uh, but i think it, well it's uh, minorities it's really a that make a lot of noise then. To, when you see the dichotomy uh of reactions to um in the you know, we know that what's happening on the BDS, we know the rise of anti-Semitism, it's continuing, uh, but some, uh, you know, remarkable developments. The, the study that came out, it's now revealed that the State Department during the previous administration did a study that shows there were 20,000 actual Palestinian refugees, and it has not been released, and there's now members of Congress who are demanding the release. You have UNRWA saying there are 5. point one million. I wow! Think, what a discrepancy! Huh? The Palestinians claim nine million, thirteen million,
4: Whoa. and here you
3: have them saying of the seven hundred thousand, uh, you know, Arab refugees or residents at the time of uh, who, who are there are only twenty thousand who are still alive and are displaced from their homes. So it, you know, we see the lies being answered. We see the distortions, some of them being at least rectified. I mean, they're clarified by uh of things that we knew all along but the um, uh, I would only hope that our own community would start to think about and how, how many people are are thinking of all of those who have lost their livelihoods in the south because of these fires of yep. the devastation to 8000 acres and almost 2000 acres of farmland of the the natural forests the forests and nature reserves of all the other things that uh, of a, a firebomb, these uh, balloons landing in a kindergarten, and what what it could have been. Chasson what the outcome could have been, when and thank God that well, that wasn't the case there.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about the south more in a couple of minutes. I just I, let, me, let me, since it is Eriff Tishkov, just a couple more things on the social aspects. First of all, I saw your statement regarding the rabbi in Haifa, who was arrested and detained. And it sounds like from the tone of your statement, you're simply asking, as the attorney general did with the release, you're simply asking people to step back and calm down a bit. There's got to be a better way to handle this than by starting to arrest people and by starting to, you know, to really, you know, stoke the flames of these types of issues. Uh, Am I right that you're simply asking for for a comment? Right.
3: It was was a comment about the process to go five in the morning and, and, again, create another issue that becomes a flashpoint. Right. If you have a legal process, do it normally, you know. Do it in, in, if you have a charge against somebody, anybody. Um, do it in the right way. But you know, it can often be just a personal pique or somebody. It, it is a local issue, very local. It's not a federal government decision in Israel to go and arrest this guy, and and yet it becomes now again another issue and a slander against the, the whole state and against the, everyone and. Um, and again, it's inappropriate to go in five o'clock in the morning, rouse a guy who's been doing this for, for many years. It could be against the law. But it could be wrong. Do it in in the right way,
0: and that clearly wasn't. All right. Uh, you mentioned the nation-state law that passed. I I, I know it, it can be cumbersome for you and the listeners to hear me read, uh, especially you know at length. But let me. I think it's important that I just go through the basics of this and just and just tell me if in fact the controversy is really. You know, legitimate or not, uh, the nation state of the uh, Jewish people, Israel. The, the basic law is that Israel is a nation state of the Jewish people. State of Israel is the historic homeland of the Jewish people. Uh, the national symbols include the uh, the name, which is Israel, the flag, white with two blue stripes near the edges. The symbols, the menorah, the national anthem, Hatikva. The unified and complete city of Jerusalem is the capital. The language of the state of Israel is Hebrew. The Arabic language has a special status in the state. The regulation of the Arab language and state institutions, or when facing them, will be regulated by law. The state's open to Jewish immigration and to the gathering of the exile. The state will labor to ensure the safety of sons of the Jewish people and the citizens around the world who are in trouble, will act to preserve the cultural, historical, and religious legacy of the Jewish people in the diaspora. The state views Jewish settlement as a national value and labor to encourage and promote its establishment and development. The Hebrew calendar is the official calendar of the state, along with the secular calendar serving as, the, as an official calendar. National holidays include Independence Day, Memorial Day for those who fell, uh, Memorial Day for the Holocaust, uh, and Saturday and Jewish holidays are the official days of rest in the state. Uh, the basic law may not be altered except by basic law that gained the approval of the majority of the Knesset members. Now, I get you know that some of these things in here are in fact controversial based on the way things are today, but, but isn't it great, isn't it great, <laughs> That this law reminds Jewish people, to an extent, non-Jews around the world as well, reminds Jewish people what the basic tenet is of why we have a state, why we have a political entity that is called the State of Israel. I-, I think every one of these is is vital and key to reminding everybody why it's so important. Okay. Do you think the controversy? <laughs> do you think the controversy is warranted? I know it talks about you know. The expansion and settlement being important to the state, and I know it talks about Arabic being not at the same level of uh, of Hebrew, but but after all, is this any different than seventy years ago with the intention of what the state would be?
3: Well, so so there are people who argue that this should have been part of the adopted seventy years ago, and the the national law. And if you, I think people should read Netanyahu's uh, explanation of the bill and and uh, which was adopted. And there are those who believe that this is really just the parting shot for this Knesset session, uh, but uh, is also the beginning of the campaign that will be announced for elections. Right when they reconvene, as you know, they go out of session now until after Sukkot. So the Knesset is is gone, and um, they wanted to get this thing enacted. There was. A very controversial part, which was seen as discriminatory and saying about the separate communities, Mm -hmm. uh, that was dropped. Uh, There were other modifications, some modifications to language, but one of the issues was whether it says Israel's activities in the diaspora or which is wherever they are. Uh, Some people feel it's simply uh, linguistics uh, and semantics, rather, and and others feel that it has some substantive uh, implication. Uh, You know, it's very very Talmudic, the interpretations that are given to to some of the content. I understand the concerns that are being raised. Uh, The... um, uh, bill was hotly debated until um, pay- way past midnight on, on at least one night, maybe two nights, and this was uh, this version was uh, finally adopted. the The thing about settlements is that it's is really talking about community building, mm-hmm. not settlements. And I think it's a mistake that nowhere in a document do they say the word democratic. You know, just the use of the word would have blunted that kind of uh, criticism. To give people at least the the sense and the and of course the commitment to a democratic state remains, but they didn't. The fact that they didn't use these, these terms and that the opposition, of course, is is rising against the government on it. and It was a very close vote. I think seven seven vote difference uh, on it.
0: Um, well, I will say the following: timing is everything. I think this is the perfect week of the year for this to remind the Jewish people how vital the Jewish state is to our people. And I think uh, all the different points in it are, you know, each one of them uh, helps us remember just how important the state is. In, in, this, in this week when we remember destruction and what the Jewish people went through for thousands of years, I think it's important to, uh, that, that, that this reminds us what we have and how important it is in going forward uh, for the future of the Jewish people.
3: And uh, part of the problem is that this kind of measure obscures so many important developments uh, that that are going on. When you look at the situation in the north, when we, you know, look at Israel's going to spend $5 billion to fortify its borders in the north and in the south, and the, the continuing not only the fires and the missiles that are fired at uh, Israel, that need to build uh, bunkers again and to reinforce uh, some of the existing bomb shelters. and the you know things that we thought were relegated to the past and how Israel still faces very serious challenges and serious issues and we shouldn't let whatever differences emerge over this or any other issue to divide us and to to detract the attention from the from the real fundamentals when you see the Khamenei says we're going to eradicate Israel and when you see that they announced that their the uranium stockpiles reached, I think, over 900 tons, uh, they had 500 in, in 2015, and now they're already up to 900, 950, that uh, the uh, the threats that, that continue against Israel, that these things tend to to diminish the tension and become the, the flashpoints. In the meantime, um the Iranian militias are, are integrating with the Syrian forces. They're posing a greater threat to Israel's northern border. The, 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 uh, the longer-term implications we have to see, I think, that hopefully, that the president's meetings with uh, President Tr- uh, Putin did yield uh, some sort of an agreement, and certainly the messages that came out seem to be positive on this in regard to Israel, even if not much else has been really... Uh, Concretized in the reports, at least we don't know because it was a you know one-on-one meeting. But the that on this issue, and it seems Netanyahu reacted uh, positively uh, that they uh, committed and and removing the Iranians and the Iranian militia and the RGC, who again are integrated with the Syrian forces, which Israel said could come closer. And they're talking about the Syrian forces getting to to Kinetra, you know, getting within miles of, of Israel. Uh, The separation agreement in 1974, which people should go back and look at, because that is becoming more and more the basis for any future understanding and dealing with the threat in, in the North, which is great, you know, to talk about. Israel having to say that it's okay to have the Syrian army there it already tells you, you know, the um, uh, the, the seriousness of the situation. But getting the Iran military presence out, at least for now, and that the Russians have spoken about the long-term need to get all of the Iranian presence out, it's not going to happen uh, right now. But thinking of the arsenal of rockets, of 120,000 rockets in Lebanon you talk about the increased capabilities uh, by being along israel's uh, border in syria and jordan which should uh, also threatened by it the um, uh, the, the significance of of uh, the situation in the north and the need for concerted action, and most of all for the message that comes out the fact that america that Bolton spoke about America staying in in Syria is very important it 's a message to the arab countries it 's a message to others who are involved, and most of all it 's got to be a message to the people in Syria, to the forces in Syria, both the government and non governmental that we're not going to put up with it we 're going to be there we 're doing a good job, I think, with the sanctions. On, on Iran, we're seeing the changes um, that are taking place, that the businesses there are reporting that they don't have uh, the material and they're being impacted. The uh, real has fallen to half its value over this year, which is a pretty good indication of, uh, of how serious things are. And yet they announced that they're building a centrifuge rotor machine company, which helps in the nuclear program. To, you need centrifuges, and this is an advancement towards that. Uh, a country that is facing such serious challenges, able to continue to spend the money, despite the fact that people of Iran are opposed to it. They don't want to see this adventurism. They don't want to support Hamas. They don't want to support Hezbollah. They say it. You have wildfires, the drought, many other things, uh, really devastating the country and its economy in a in a downspin, but thanks to the sanctions and new sanctions that are coming, in. Uh, in a couple of weeks from, uh, from the administration, uh, are really impactful. And this is a time when we have to show that we're engaged in the region, we're going to continue to be engaged, we're going to um, do whatever is necessary to assure that we don't create a circumstance or leave a circumstance in Syria that will be more threatening to Israel, to Jordan, and to the region.
0: America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world in the web at Nacolmsegle.com on the Naholm network and of course in the beloved NSN app. Let me go back to uh, some of the things you mentioned uh, during that list of, uh, of of answers to the questions I haven't yet asked. Um, the on on the uh, Israel being a subject of the Putin, trump discussions this week so you did mention it was a one-on-one of course we don't know exactly what was discussed netanyahu did express satisfaction with whatever you know report came out of there do do we know anything other than uh putin agreeing with trump that the security and safety of israel is vital
3: uh that is one of the few things that seems to be apparent and and uh, president trump commented on it and said in fact that he's that Putin is uh, friendly to PB, I think he even used the word fan, uh, and that he is committed to Israel, and something certainly President Trump uh, has shown that he's committed uh, to security of Israel. And if they uh, agreed, on, at least on that, about the way they have to deal uh, with the threat in the North, and that's why I, I stress it, because this is really a serious uh, issue people tend to look at it as an internal battle in, in Syria, when in fact its implications are are much broader. And as I've talked about before, Russia's commitment in Syria is minimal. Uh, they have a you know a couple dozen planes. They they still do the bombing runs for the Syrian army, and we saw it in Dara and other areas. But the uh, their real capacity on the ground is limited. When you're talking about tens of thousands of Shiite militia and others working in the region and in, in this border region uh, that poses a, a really direct threat to Jordan and Israel in the, in the near term not only you know in some distant time so the the comments that they've made in that regard i think were were uh, good in the president saying they came to a good conclusion for Israel is uh is hopeful for for everyone who was who looking and parsing whatever little bits of information have come out the the fact that people can talk in confidence i don't think is a bad thing i think that sometimes right. it's it's beneficial but you know of course everybody wants to know because the, the 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 consequences of it of of what happens between them uh, affect everyone and and very greatly
0: and I know I'm being very philosophical on this era of Tisha but I, I, I still marvel at the fact that Israel <laughs> maintains its status as one of the top agenda items when a, when Putin and Trump get together. Sometimes you have to sit back and just realize again the, the uh, stature of Israel in the world today, unprecedented certainly if you look at the history of the last 2,000 years. Going down south for a second, you mentioned what's happening there and of course the fires continue, but we also saw that hundreds of rockets came this week um, uh, over the border. Uh, We know that there was talk of a ceasefire. Would love to know if that at all uh, went into effect. And uh, is Israel in fact being forced into war As uh, as many members of the Israeli Knesset are insisting they are? It,
3: there seems to be um, a downward spiral. I don't think it's a, a ceasefire, it's a sneeze fire. It's because it's about the length of one sneeze and you're over. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and we know that Hamas can't be relied on, and, and no matter what they do, the, as soon as it's I, advantageous, when they feel the pressure more, they go for it. And as you know, in the South, uh, other measures have taken place. Israel has closed the Kerem Shalom crossing. Egypt closed the Rafah crossing, which means essentially they have no way to get goods in and out. During the time that it was open, the Egyptians opened Rafah, 18,000 Palestinians, including 150 doctors and leaders and others, left because they, they want to get out of there. They, the Hamas is, you know, destroying it and uh, doing nothing for the people. And it, it was essential that Israel stop the flow of fuel, to, to Gaza, as long as they 're going to use this fuel to send over hundreds and hundreds of balloons that that are doing such extensive damage and threats, and as soon, as long as rockets are, are being fired, uh, essential medicines and foods do get through but this is really abbas 's uh, 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 boycott and limit not not uh, israel 's it 's Abbas who is uh, wants to see the economic conditions. They don't want to see Hamas rewarded. There's talk of of Egypt uh, having put forward this proposal, and maybe Hamas accepted it or didn't accept it. It's very hard to know because in any two five minute periods, the the situation can be dramatically different in terms of the messages. Yes. Uh, but the conditions inside Gaza are indeed bad. Nobody wants to see a collapse because that you know they could shift the onus to Israel and say you're, you're it's your responsibility or the and uh, Egypt can't assume the responsibility, won't for for uh, Gaza itself. You have two million people there, and it's it, it is not Israel that is fault. Israel was sending in hundreds and hundreds of trucks every day uh, of goods and and the material, and it, as was was true with the cement that they, they allowed it to go in and they used it for tunnels, and the, there was supposed to be then, in, there was an international agreement that they would monitor all the cement. And in fact, we know that they continued to divert it as they built uh, the tunnels, as they were diverting the fuel that was supposed to go to the generators for electricity. So you have only intermittent electricity, and now you have even less. And I think that the, um, uh, so so Hamas may agree under pressure, under pressure of events to some sort of uh, temporary ceasefire. But their existence rests upon the fact that they're at war for the destruction of Israel. And without that, they have no real raison d'etre. And the if, in fact, there are unity talks in the off, oh, I, I don't see it. I don't think Abbas is ready to commit to this or anything else. He doesn't even talk to the Americans, uh, offering them the opportunity to, to discuss uh, the possible peace initiative uh, but the the um, uh, the essential thing is that, that people understand and the, the onus will, of course, be placed on Israel and they'll start condemning them for uh, closing the border. They should know the circumstances and what the limitations are and that it's first and foremost the PA itself that is doing.
0: But I always think, and, you know, armchair general, I, I always think it's really up to Israel if if they feel that the only way to quell all of this and to stop its progress is by going to war and doing what they did in 2014, then they'll make that decision and they'll go ahead. It sounds like, the way you're describing it, that that if in fact I'm right that it's Israel's decision to make, it sounds like they're not close to deciding yes on that.
3: Look, a war is is very complicated in Gaza. If you're talking about ground invasions and loss of life for Israeli troops, and civilians who could get caught in fire crossfires you know the Hamas uses them as as the civilian shields uh, the uh and it's very hard to go after the balloons you have to go after the source so they did take out uh, a, a unit they did bomb a unit where the um, from which we believe the orders for for the uh, balloons were were coming from but they responded with two hundred missiles were fired last weekend to against Israel and one day on, on I think on friday uh, and uh, in less than 24 hours, uh, 200 rockets and mortars on the communities in the south. And they have to spend their whole day running in and out of uh, bomb shelters. We know that some of them uh, uh, do a lot of damage. You think about this in any other place in the world, you know what the reaction would be. But Israel's demonstrating, again, such restraint. And not to escalate it and to try and target the responses. If you can do 42 bombing raids in response and you have almost no civilian casualties, they claimed uh, two this time, uh, 50 raids before with no civilian casualties. And the um, so Israel is clearly acting with terrific restraint and not trying to escalate the situation, but can't allow this to continue. Remember all the promises when Israel withdrew from Gaza, from the United States, and everyone else. You cross, you go back to the border, you go back, you can do whatever you need to to protect your border, you'll be able to strike back, you'll be able to, to take whatever defensive measures are necessary. Well... We know that, that uh, you see how much the international community is ready to, to stand up for Israel, and they can vote 120 to 8 in the UN, um, and despite the amazing work of Nikki Haley, uh, to, to condemn uh, Israel. So is, there are certain things that uh, don't change, and Tishbab reminds us of that. But the, the, um, it's, it's, it's not easy for Israel to have to decide to go in on the ground, it's much better an aerial war where they can do what they have to do, and take out as many targets as they need to. But the infrastructure for balloons is simply very hard. It's not like a a, a rocket launcher which you can target and just take out.
0: Unbelievable. Uh, I I I know that this was the anniversary, of the month of July, of the Amia bombing in Argentina. I didn't realize they do a, a memorial in Israel as well, not just in Argentina.
3: They do every year. And- there's a lot of families. And the, don't forget also the Israeli uh, embassy was attacked, and um, people were killed there as well. So there is a, uh, an annual commemoration, but there are developments. There are important developments. I met with the leaders of the Argentinian Jewish community uh, just the past week, and uh, there are important um, Steps and progress on the Nisman investigation of the the prosecutor, the Jewish prosecutor, and they said committed suicide, but we believe, and I think more and more people have come to the conclusion that he was murdered because he was that day to testify about the government, the president, and others' involvement. So we're, we're seeing more uh, actions in regard with uh, the the Argentinian government asked Russia to hold Valiati, the Iranian official, who is one of those. Named as a as a conspirator in this, and uh, the one of the people who orchestrated it, they obviously didn't hold them, but they are still under the red cards of the of Interpol, meaning they're designated people uh, who are to be uh, to be apprehended. But the the government, the current government, seems to have made additional commitments. You have a prosecutor who is um, active on this, and we're seeing. The the overall situation in South America today is is really very interesting. Uh, Venezuela, look at the statistics of how many people have gone from uh, Venezuela to um, uh, Argentina, Colombia, Ecuador. uh, uh, About uh, uh, it's several million refugees, maybe more than a million and a half, uh, but uh, and about four million. Venezuelans have left the country wow. over recent years, and the um, and Argentina is at least moving in the right direction, despite the fact that you see Bolivia, Ecuador, uh, Nicaragua, others moving in the wrong direction. Of course, Cuba as well, and the state destabilizing efforts of Iran in the region, and that was part of of uh, these attacks against the uh, in Argentina. We know that the Iranians were directly involved. It's more and more evidence of it, and hopefully these pro- the prosecutions and the um, information that will come out, much of it was destroyed when the police went into his, apo- into his uh, house after, the, uh, after it was found that he was killed. We still don't know why his 12 uh, bodyguards were in the basement, nobody up with him or, or monitoring it, and that he had asked for a gun that day for protection. So now some are trying to speculate that it was a suicide. Uh, I we don't believe that there is any evidence that really will substantiate that charge.
0: Unbelievable. But right.
3: I will tell you that at the administration's position, when America takes a strong stand, it affects what countries like Argentina will do in regard to the, an investigate uh, this ongoing investigation and and um, uh, taking more, having more courage to stand up
0: to Iran. Oh, that I believe all right, a couple of quick things. Uh, number one, it's obvious that uh, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez uh, is more ignorant on many issues than people originally thought. Agreed?
3: She certainly admits to it, and but the problem is she's being lionized. She's campaigning around the country. She is, um, without people knowing, she's become a, a symbol, uh, so to speak, elected with a, a small percentage of the actual voters turning out. And if anything uh, warns us of something you and I have discussed for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, trying to get people to register, to vote, to understand that every vote counts and how a few votes can make all the difference. Now you see it in the most blatant fashion, where I think 10% of the people voted. But she is becoming a symbol, and while she backed off and said that she doesn 't know much about the Middle East when she was questioned in depth, the fact is that she still says she identifies with the Palestinians, and she you can have sympathy for the Palestinians. A big difference between that and the kind of positions and and not having information it should be a reason not to
0: make comments on it. yeah, no question about that. And what do you think of the Zuckerberg thing, uh, the question about keeping posts that deny the Holocaust within his realm of social media?
3: Obviously, I disagree with it. I think that this is one of those uh, things that, that uh, like incitement to violence, et cetera, that should not be permitted. There are laws in European countries and elsewhere. We don't have them here in the United States on uh, group libel. But I think as a, as a corporate decision... It should be made that they will not allow uh, to have it, and, and I don't think that there are many other issues of a, of a similar, well, they're not as, as serious uh, as what happened in the Holocaust, but in, in racial issues or discriminatory things or uh, viol- uh, incitement of violence against other groups they would tolerate it. Right, that's so we true. have to be very vocal and make sure they understand this is not acceptable.
0: That's the real that's the real free speech, that's the real argument against the free speech argument that you have to, just, you have to make an even playing field and you know what would happen if it was against any other group. So, yeah. and, and it's
3: not just what you, just on itself in, in its own terms, the fact that you that you continue to allow people to engage in Holocaust denial which is outlawed in many countries, and certainly restricted. And the uh, should should not be allowed because it's a defamation of a people. It's, them, it, it's a disgrace to those who are martyred in it. It's like denying that World War II happened. Right, wouldn't right. allow it, and it shouldn't be allowed.
0: Uh, all right, Malcolm, and easy well, wonderful Shabbos, easy fast. Next week we're off because of Nachamu, etc. And hopefully two weeks from today we will reconvene.
3: Have to say because I will be traveling, but God willing, we will get together soon again.
0: Bezrat Hashem, thank you very much. That's uh, Malcolm is making a good point. In August, he's always uh, back and forth here and there. <laughs> so we will announce uh, once it's uh, what once he and I know the exact schedule and whether he's coming up on a Friday. Uh, we will certainly alert the audience ASAP next week. As we said, uh, we're off with the Erev uh, Shabbos Nachamu show being done from Beit Meir with the NCSY Summer Programs. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the uh, weekly update here on Friday mornings at JM in the AM. Well, as I said, um, uh, over the last couple of weeks and certainly today, Erev Tishabov um, it, it is uh, always wonderful when Rabbi Yudin is in Israel and addresses us about the Torah portion from Israel. It always makes it extra special. You can imagine now Erev Tishabov. How much more so? Uh, with that in mind, uh, this time each and every Friday, every Arab Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present Rabbi Benjamin Uden, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomri Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Udin. Good morning, Nachum, for you,
5: and good Arab Shabbos, everybody. Here in Israel, I can only tell you that... All the eateries are closed. They're closed Mitzvah Shabbat. They're closed until mid the day on Yo on Tish Abav. The nation mourns, and you can feel Tish in the air, in the sense that the friendliness, which is usually there, it's beginning to diminish as we go into this coming Shabbat. Now let's talk first about the many different halachos given, especially this year, that Tish Ab is on a Shabbos and the fast is nitre, is pushed off to a Sunday. Let me just begin by saying this is Parshas Devarim. I hope to come back to it. There are but two uh, mitzvos in Parshas Devarim. They are two restrictions related to the judges. Interesting. You'll contrast this week to please God next week. Of. Parshas for Eschanan and Shabbos Nachamu, where the Aseris Adibros and so many positive mitzvahs, Tefillin, Shema, Mezuzah, wow, um, all found in next week's parsha. The Torah itself is mourning with us. Let's begin by number one, the difference between this year and other years. So tomorrow, is Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av. You fast on Sunday because we don't fast on Shabbos. Having said that, do the laws of Erev Tishabav on a regular year apply to tomorrow? And the answer is no. What does that mean? It means that on a regular year Erev Tisha B'av, in the afternoon, so there's a question about the Shocheronar says we are not to study Torah, and the reason for that explains the Chassam Sofer is what you learn during the day is going to be with you in the evening as well, and. Again, many say that this does not apply tomorrow. Those that are concerned about it, so in the afternoon, study those things related to tish B'Av. But if you study other parts of Torah, there are um, sources to rely upon, and the main thing is that this Shabbos going into tish B'Av should be a meaningful one, and therefore the study of Torah is appropriate. Now, There is no su'udah hamavsekes this year. You want to have a hard-boiled egg for Shalashudas because you enjoy a hard-boiled egg. That's something else. But you're not eating the hard-boiled egg tomorrow afternoon for Shalashudas because you are going into Tish B'Av. That would be wrong. You're eating Shalashudahs, and the Shulchan Aruch says that if a person wanted to, they could have meat, and wine tomorrow afternoon for shalosh suudos. If you want to finish the lefto- leftover chant and you have a way of keeping it you know, warm and fresh, etc., not taking it off the fire, go right ahead. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but it's important to know that you can do that tomorrow afternoon. There is no sitting low tomorrow afternoon. There is no eating of bread and ash. None of that apply tomorrow afternoon. There is no suda. What there is important to know is that you um, finish your uh, meal, your shalosh before shkia, before sunset. If my recollection is collect correct, um, sunset this uh, Shabbos is at. Uh, 8, uh, sixteen. all right, and so therefore I would not recommend that you eat until 8.16. You'll stop a few moments earlier than that. But that's it. It's a regular Shalosh dose. If you usually have Shalosh with friends, then you can even have it with friends tomorrow. If you don't usually have it with friends, then it would be inappropriate to call friends, you know, and invite people for just this Shalashuddas. But other than that, you're still wearing your shoes on Shabbos. If you're going to take off your shoes on Shabbos, then, uh, excuse me, I see I made a note for myself that Shaki is age 21. So um, that being the case, you'll stop a few moments earlier um, in terms of your eating on uh, Shabbos afternoon. Okay, now. In terms of your shoes for Motsoe Shabbos, so there are two ways of doing this. One, bring them to shul today before you come to shul uh, tonight for Shabbos, for Mincha and Kabbalah Shabbos. And then, after uh, Baruch you take off your shoes, you say, Baruch ben kodesh you take off your shoes and you put on the um, uh, non-leather shoes, which we cannot you know, do on Shabbos. It would be wrong for a person to wear his, quote, Tisha shoes to shul tomorrow afternoon for um, mincha or for uh, myriv, if you only put it on after Baruch In other places, the, there will be a pause before myriv for people to drive to the Beis HaKinesis. At home, you don't make Havdalah tomorrow night. No Havdalah tomorrow night. Havdalah is recited, please God, after the Tanis on Sunday night. However, men and women, should know that before they do any malacha tomorrow night, they should say, Baruch Hamabdil, Bain Kodesh Okay, now, um, next, In regarding uh, this Shabbos, we have the same Tfilos. Interestingly, we don't say, uh, on this Shabbos because we don't say tzedkashah at a time when you would not say tachanun, and it's a very powerful concept that tishabav is korah Olai moed. It's literally treated like a holiday. Now what does that mean? There are holidays to eat matzah, there are holidays to sit in the sukkah, and there are holidays to remember what we are missing, and by literally sitting down on Tish B'Av, and by focusing on what we are missing, this, please, God, keeps us going, yearning, pining for that third Beis which will be coming as the prophets promised us. They didn't just say, it's coming. They promised us, and it's only a question of Time, all right, and that's exceedingly important. We do recite the bracha of borei mioreh uh, ha'esh this Mitzvah is and so um, this is usually done after Ma'ariv, before the reading of Eicha. So we recite the bracha of borei Mio ha'esh. Uh, the bracha of b'samim. Is not said um, this year for Havdalah, period. The Havdalah is said a Sunday night, motzoi the Tanis, and the introductory part of he Kil is not said. We just say at that time the Bracha of Borei pre hagafen and Baruch mavdil. you know, the Bracha of Amavdil being, you know, kodesh l'chol. That is the Havdalah which is done. It's important to know that if somebody needs to eat this coming Sunday, a chola, somebody who is sick, and they can make it until a certain time. And at that point on, they have to eat before they eat, they should recite Havdalah. Instead of saying the Borei, Free hagafen over wine or grape juice, they should say shahakol over Hamar Medina, whether it's a little bit of beer, coffee, or tea would be okay. The bracha of Shako, and then Hamavdil. Um, so for nursing mommies, um, pregnant women, um, so it's important that before they eat, drink, on uh, Tisha B'Av that Havdalah should be recited on their behalf. Okay? Now, before we get to the um, halachos of Tisha B'Av, while we're talking about um, making Havdalah uh, before one eats, let me say that if someone needs to take medication on Tisha B'Av, they will fast. But they need to take medications. Take the medication, and if you can take it without water, that's the best. If you need some water, then depoting the water, meaning put some salt into it, put some mouthwash into it. You're not taking that much water. You're just taking as much as you need to take the capsule down or the pill. And so, therefore, you should, you know, uh, make the water. A little bit, you know, uh, not uh, tasteful. Good. Now let's understand. Five terrible occurrences happened on Tish Aḇe The Mishnah tells us one that it was decreed that because of the sin of the Miraglim of the spies, that we would not enter. Eretz Yisrael, the next generation did. And we spent an additional 39 years in the desert. And as a result of that as well, unfortunately, it was already decreed on that night. You cried for naught, and I'll give you what to cry about. So the second and third Terrible occurrences were. The first base of English was destroyed on Tish Abav by the Babylonians. The second base of English was destroyed on Tish Abav by the Romans. The fourth thing is that the city of Betar was captured and tens of thousands of Jews were killed as a result. And finally, the wicked Tunis Rufus plied, plowed the site of the Besam Migdash and its surroundings. So, unfortunately, Uru, Uru, they took even, you know, the very foundation, you know, away. However, we know it is coming back. So, the five restrictions of Yom Kippur, the rabbis put and applied to Tisha B'Av as well. And so, the first thing is, eating and drinking is prohibited. Just understand that, whereas on Yom Kippur, if somebody has to eat, the Rabbi is going to tell them to follow the Shulchan and to eat Shi'urim, which means a small amount at a time and wait. This does not apply to Tisha B'Av. However, I will say, if you have to drink and only drink, then don't eat and if you have to eat and not drink, etc., and most important, eat as much as you have to, drink as much as you have to, but you're still in. What does that mean? You're not doing the other four restrictions, all right, which is very, very important. And so you're considered part of the fast, all right? And uh, I am going to say that from the letter of the law, whereas when it comes to Yom Kippur, children are obligated to start the fast a year or two before, not so on Tishab. B'Av. You might have a hard time getting your 11 or 12 year old not to fast the whole day, but from the letter of the law, they do not fast. They don't have to fast. Okay, and needless to say, whoever is um, eating should eat, but They're not having any ice cream, meaning that we're not having anything more than what is necessary for the day. Eating and drinking is one. Washing of one's body is prohibited, period. And we're talking for basically washing for pleasure, and therefore what one does in the morning. One takes a cup, washes what is called negelvasa to one's knuckles, and... um, takes the, the uh, water off the hands, and um, with your hands somewhat moist, you wash out your eyes, and that is it. And uh, now, understandably, if a person is taking care of a baby and they get their hands dirty, or you're preparing food for those that have to eat, fine. But we're talking about, very simply, ourselves, there is, after one uses the bathroom, once again, you um, wash with a cup, you know, until uh, your knuckles, and that's it. That's the second. The third um, prohibition of the day is anointing, which is um, applying uh, all kinds of uh, cosmetics, um, oils, soaps, hair tonic, creams perfumes, all that is prohibited on Tishah B'Av. If a person needs to uh, anoint, quote, for medical reasons, that is not a problem. While perfume is prohibited, the use of a deodorant to remove a bad odor is permissible. Um, Tashmish Hamita, cohabitation, is prohibited on uh, Tisha B'Av. And finally, the fifth uh, prohibition is wearing leather shoes, and this applies uh, throughout the day of Tisha B'Av. There is, as we know, the prohibition on this Sunday of learning Torah. That in of itself should remind us how sweet Torah is, and it should remind us of the privilege of studying Torah, those um, issues which talk about the destruction, the laws of destruction, learning about Eicha, the Gemara in Gittin, uh, Nun Vav to Nun Ches, uh, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Kufiya Dalid, uh, Amud Aleph and Amud Beis, these are you know permitted on Tish B'av, and just understand. Minog is that Sunday morning when you see somebody, we don't greet somebody. And Saturday night we sit low when we read Eicha. When you come home, you sit low as well, similar to a mourner during Shiva. No gift giving on. One should try to, um, you know, uh, how should I say it, curtail le- levity, etc., uh, people socializing together. Certainly until mid-day the day on Sunday, one is sitting low. Now, try, try. Be it online, if you can't get to a bais like HaKnesses, but there are many, many shuls that now, and especially this year on a Sunday, what's your rush? In going to a six thirty minion and finishing by eight o'clock, eight thirty, nine o'clock. Now what? Go to an eight eight thirty minion and afterwards say kinus slowly till chatzos, which is at approximately one o two. Go as I said online. There are many different Chasheva rabbonim that we'll be discussing and explaining the kinos. The kinos are very hard to understand, but with listening to them and going to shuls where the rabbis will be explaining it, it makes the morning much more meaningful than just the recitation of kinos, which are written in a very flowery way, and that too often, unfortunately, uh, we don't know. Certainly especially this year being Sunday. One ideally should not work the entire day, but at least until Chatzos, one should avoid working on Tisha B'Av. Chatzos is at 1.02. This coming Sunday morning, we do not put on the Tallis and Tefillin on Sunday morning, and uh, we do put them on for Mincha time. Very important. And uh, very simply, the minog is this coming Saturday night for a person to try to deprive themselves of some comfort when going to sleep. If they usually sleep with two pillows, make it one. If it's with one, you got the idea. Do your best just to show that it's 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 having its impact, you know, upon you. And finally, just understand that normally when Tishabov is during the week. So many of the restrictions of Tish Av go until the 10th of Av till midday. This year because it is a Nidcha, the law says that already this um, um this Sunday night one can bathe, one can wash clothing. If you can find a barber, Or shave if need be. You can do that already on Sunday night. You should not have um, meat and wine until Monday morning, and many do not have music as well until Monday morning. Kiddush Levana, according to many, is done. You know this um, Sunday night afterwards. Now. I just want to uh, conclude with a very interesting Pasuk sound in Parshas Devarim. In chapter one, Pasuk thirty one, what does Hashem say to the Jewish people? Open it up one. Thirty-one, uva midbara shera in the desert that you saw, ashenasach Hashem lokecha, God carried you, kasher ish as a father carries his child. Understand that in the name in Echa you don't find the name of Elohim. Elohim is that of judgment. You only find the name of Hashem, Yudke Vavke, which is that of Rachamim. As hard as it is for us to understand, the Talmud tells us, why do we get up at mid-the-day? Because it was after mid-the-day that they put the Beis of aflame. And so, what's happening then? So the the Gemara tells us very powerfully HaMaso al etzem God literally poured his anger on the stones and on the wood of the Beis Migdash as opposed to uh, the you know the people being destroyed so we always have to see quote unquote a silver lining and finally Let's understand something that Tishabav is not only for us. Tishabav, we take a significant krechts for Hashem himself. Namely, that as the Pussek says over here, he is our father. A father is pained when his children are pained. And therefore, as it says in. Take a look at the Gemara Brachos, Gimbala Aleph, towards the bottom. What does Hashem say? Oilo woe unto the Father whose child has been cast away. So too the way Hashem feels about, unfortunately, our being in our state of without His glory. And we pray that very, very soon His glory will fill the world again. Our observance of Tisha B'Av, our focusing on what we don't have, our focusing on what is going to be in the future, this is the greatest guarantee that Amir Tz bikharov, the Rambam writes, Number twelve Anima I believe with perfect faith, not maybe yes, maybe no, the that there will be that coming of Moshiach. And even though there's no question about it, from our perspective come on, come on, come out, come out wherever you are. Imkoze I wish everybody. A good Shabbos and a meaningful fast to all.
4: I
2: don't I don't Damn it, never be shy, never be shy, to me me, 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 I know, see. Min loysh, 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 min
0: J.M. in the A.M. My Zadis Avremel, Avram Fried, and family with that incredible collection. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. It's Erev Tishabov. We'll observe Tishabov tomorrow night and uh, and Sunday. Candle lighting today at 8.02 on this Erev Shabbos, uh, Shabbos Chazon. Erev Shabbos Parshas Devarim. Final reminders uh, we have the. Um, JM Sunday program with Matis starting at 7 a.m. Sunday morning on Tishabov at 9.15. We go to the new Springville Jewish Center. Five amazing speakers explaining kinnis and uh, having thoughts on Tishabov all the way until Mincha time. That'll all be on video live at Nalchamsegel.com. Just go to the website. You'll see it on the homepage, Nalchamseagle.com. And of course, it'll be the audio will be on all of our sources website, um, app, listen line. They'll all be accessible all through the day. And then at 7 p.m., Project Inspire starts at 7 p.m. with Charlie Harari at the helm. Also an amazing opportunity to uh, spend the final hours of Tishabov above in a very productive fashion. So that's all happening. It's all coming up on Tishabov above Sunday. Make sure to be tuned in. It will be remarkable and incredible and an amazing way to spend your Tisha B'Av day. Monday, we're back. Full-fledged, regular format starting at 6 a.m. Monday morning with JM and the AM. Make sure to be tuned in as we march forward to Shabbos Nachamun. Get ready for an amazing and incredible broadcast week from Israel. So much to talk about. We'll talk again on Monday. Uh, Wishing everybody a wonderful Shabbos and easy fast. Time to say good Shabbos with Journeys at JM and the AM. The
6: sun is going down, it's shining through the trees.
0: Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web On the AlchomZegal Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. And that will close out an amazing and incredible week for us here at JM and the AM. I thank all of you for tuning in. Again, remember, remember we've got a um, an incredible Sunday Tisha programming-wise. 7 a.m., Matis with J.M. Sunday, 9.15, we begin our broadcast from the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island with Kinnis and Tishabov explained. Isaiah Wall for Mincha, 43rd and 1st, New York City, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York City. Remember, there's a covering there. To protect from rain and sun. So make sure to be there with Tolleson's Phil and 2 o'clock on Sunday. And of course, 7 p.m. Project Inspire right here at the Nachum Segal Network. I'll speak to you on Monday, Bezrat Hashem. Have a wonderful Shabbos and easy fast, everybody. Till next week, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.